Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Welcome this morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us online. As we dive into our teaching this morning, we're going to begin by praying and reflecting and asking God to show us who he is this morning. We say it every week. We're going to keep saying it. We live in a critical culture, and we don't want to be critical this morning. We want to be contributors to the conversation of faith. And so we're going to take time, and we're just going to pray that God might teach us that the Holy Spirit might use the words of the scripture to show us more of who he is because there's a reason why you're watching this and God's gonna do something in your life and in your world and in our communities. And then I'll ask that you spend some time praying for yourself and for me that the Holy Spirit uses the preparation today and the words that I'm gonna speak for his ultimate good. So join me and pray. God, I'm thankful for who you are. I'm thankful that you allowed us to come together this morning through the grace of media and technology. I'm thankful we can open some scripture and talk about Jesus. I pray that you use our time this morning, Holy Spirit, speak to our spirit and shape our lives so that it might more accurately reflect the beauty of Jesus going forward. Be with us this morning as we open your word. I'd ask that you take just a couple seconds right now and, and just say a silent prayer asking the Holy Spirit to do something in your spirit this morning. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job accurately painting the picture of the beauty of Jesus in the resurrection this morning as we walk through some text. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, wherever they're at, Amen got a Bible, open it to Colossians 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. And you know, when we get started, I think what Paul's going to do here and what we're going to get into, he's going to spend the next two chapters, our next three or four weeks, and, and he's going to talk about spiritual growth. If you've been following along with us, a couple months ago, we did a whole sermon series on the values at Crossroads. And one of our values, it's honestly one of my favorites, is that growing people change. We can't get lured into complacency for too long. Jesus calls us to change, to look more like him. And and guess what? We celebrate change. We celebrate change in all aspects of life, whether it's a wedding or whether it's a baptism or whether it's simply a birthday party or a birth. We celebrate change. We celebrate growth that comes when we change. It should be celebrated. But here's the deal. And this is what makes change hard. And this is the next three words after the phrase growing people change it's often way more difficult than you think. It's often way harder than you expect, you know? At the beginning of COVID, I started to do some workouts like in my garage because it was about time, my wife said. I'm kidding. And, 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 and when I started to work out over the first 30 or so days, 
you just see so much change. All these gains, you feel bigger, faster, stronger. You're looking in the mirror and you see something shaping into something and then you hit a plateau. And and usually after that first 30 or so days, you do the same things with minimal results and you start to ask this question, what's going on? And what happens there is frustration. Why is it not working anymore? Change is hard. Change is slow. Change is often unexpected. It's the same thing in any relationship. I'm in year seven of my marriage right now, and people tell me that's a difficult year. I'll let you know how it goes in about seven months. But when we talk about growth relationally, you get to a point where you say, I'm doing the same things as I was on year one, and it seemingly isn't bringing us any closer together. Change is hard. Change is slow. Change is unexpected. And that translates into our spiritual life too. Why would we think it's any different? Why would we think it's different that spiritual growth is not hard? Because here, here can be the problem. If we paint this picture of growth that's easy or that's always joyful or that's, that's always instant, then when it doesn't become that, we ask what's failing us or God. We ask what's going wrong. It causes us to retreat into this place of shame and not celebrate the growth that we do have. Growth is hard. Growth is unexpected. Growth is a journey. And so when we talk about change, that's what Paul is talking about in our text today, we have to understand that so often we got to come back to the beginning and say, where does growth in the spiritual world come from? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And so what Paul's going to do in our text, starting in verse 1, chapter 3, he pivots. And he starts by saying, I'm going to kick into this whole section on growth. And it begins by remembering what brought us here in the first place. Read with me, verse 1. He said, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, that, that word therefore there literally can be translated since, because, or you know it's true that you've been raised with Christ. He's making a factual statement. You have been raised with Christ. That therefore there is important because what he's referencing, you've heard the phrase, what's therefore, therefore, what he's referencing in the therefore is all of what he said in chapter one and two, all of it. And he spends chapter one and two talking about the theology of Jesus, why Jesus is good. He paints this very in-depth, very big picture of the beauty of Jesus. And he says, now that you know this, let's see how life change happens. And that's important. And we're going to point that out every time it pops up at CBC because it's important to remember that our God is a God who wants all of us. Our God is a God who wants motivation and action. Our journey to look more like Jesus starts inward and then projects outward. One writer said this, nor does the Apostle Paul call his hearers to a new way of life until they've understood what it means to be new persons in Christ. Paul is no mere moralist for him. There cannot be substantial goodness without godliness. Our God calls us to change on the inside. And once our motivations change, once we see the beauty of Jesus, then we begin to look like Jesus, not the other way around. He's not after just action. He's after the whole person. And so Paul says, now that I've laid out to you this beautiful picture of Jesus, let me tell you what that does for your life. And so he starts by saying, therefore, if you have been raised in Christ. And he starts there because the resurrection, whether it's your first Sunday watching a Jesus service or whether it's your 1,000th Sunday doing the church thing, whether you were saved at 2 or 20, whether it's been 2 years or 20 years, the resurrection is absolutely central to the pursuit of Jesus. 
Paul says it in some of his later writings. He says, if it's not for the resurrection, then we should all go home. Then it's not worth it. Then we should be, he literally says, pitied the most. And what he does is he makes this case that the resurrection is a single moment that shaped everything. It's a single moment that changed the way we look at the world and the way we interact with the world. It's one of those defining moments. When you think about defining moments, I think back to the biggest moments in my life. And there's a lot of them. There's graduations and there's marriages and there's friendships and there's moving and there's all of these moments. There's job moments, but the one moment that caused me to see things differently and changed literally the meaning of the words that I used, like tired and joyful, was, was just having a kid. Some friends of mine a few weeks ago had been married. They've been married for just over a year. And they're having a conversation about do we get married? I mean, do we have a, a kid or do we not have a kid? And they they said, Charlie, what's it like to be a dad? What's it like to have a kid? How does that change you? And I looked at them and I just laughed at them. I think I answered, but I just, I laughed at them because I said, I can use words to tell you what it's going to be different. You will not understand what those words mean. You think you will, but you won't. I'm going to say it's going to be joyful, but you're not going to understand the depth of that joy. I'm going to say you're going to be tired, but you have no idea what this kind of tired looks like. I'm going to say it's going to change your outlook on the world and yourself, but you're not going to get it until you're in it. It's a defining moment that shapes everything else we do. When I do weddings, I start with a quote by Mark Twain, a friend of mine, my best friend, used it in his wedding, and I just straight stole it because that's what good writers do. And he uses it because Mark Twain has this quote on love that I think is beautiful. He said, this is what love does in the context of weddings and marriage, lifetime commitments. He says, it makes of two fractional lives whole. It'll give a new gladness to the sunshine, a new fragrance to the flowers, a new beauty to the earth, a new mystery to life. It will give a new revelation to love, a new depth to sorrow, a new impulse to worship. In that day, the scales will fall from our eyes and we will look upon a brand new world. That's what the resurrection did. The resurrection was the matrix red pill moment when this happened and you can't look back. The resurrection, here's what it fundamentally did. It changed our ruler. It changed what rules us. It absolutely in every single way changes how we live in the world because it changes who we're indebted to and who we're we're wanting to become. The resurrection wasn't just a single moment that shaped one day I get to go into heaven. It literally changed who gets to tell me what to do. When Jesus died, it wasn't just spiritual, it was physical. It wasn't just entrance into heaven. It was let's reshape and shift your day to day because he didn't just claim victory over death. He claimed victory over all the things that lead towards death in the first place. The Bible calls that sin. As Americans, we have a unique perspective through which we look at the world like any culture does. And and we've talked about this a few times. It's one of my favorite things to think about is we filter all our stuff through the lens of just pure, undulterated freedom and independence. When I was a kid growing up, I remember saying this. I remember my friend saying this, that I want to be an adult because fill in the blank. And it was always, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and however I want. The lure of adulthood was the carrot of unrestricted freedom. But, but think about it. You're an adult. If you're watching this, if you're not, great, you'll get there one day. Can you really do anything you want, however you want, whenever you want? If you're in a room with your husband and wife, look at them and say, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. See how that one goes over. 
We have this myth of absolute independence or absolute freedom, and it's wired into us as Americans. In 1830, the French historian and philosopher um, Tocqueville said this about Americans. He said, they owe nothing to any man. They expect nothing from any man. They acquire the habit of always considering themselves as standing alone, and they are apt to imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. We have this intrinsic desire for freedom to be our best good, but the Bible paints a different picture. The Bible says that you are enslaved to something. You are. And the problem of the Bible is that when we're enslaved to ourselves, it leads to death. It's what we call sin. Proverbs says it like this in 14.12. It says, there's a path before each person that seems right, but in the end leads to death. The story of the Bible is when we make ourselves our own God, it doesn't end well because we can't bear the weight of that responsibility. We can't bear the weight of that goodness. Only God can. So as the Bible progresses, it makes this case that every time we try to be our own gods, it always led, leads to destruction. But then Jesus says, no, no, you don't, you don't understand what I did. So I freed you from the enslavement of yourself. I freed you from the imprisonment of your own freedom. And I said, I can beat the things that beat you. It says in Romans 6, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by glorious power of the Father, now we have new lives. It's what writers and theologians call the tyranny of self we're freed from. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, when we have this idea that he rose from the dead, it's not strictly spiritual. It absolutely changes who we are right now because he said, I have victory over all those things that you've never beaten. I have victory. One of my favorite quotes is by a New Testament uh, theologian and historian, and he said, the ethic of the entire New Testament, he says, it's just simply be who you now are. Remember what Jesus did, and may that victory shape how you live because you are no longer slaves to any other ruler but me. So when Paul says, what does growth look like? When, when Paul says, what does it look like to live in to this Jesus that he outlines in chapter one and two, he begins by saying, therefore, know this, since you have been raised with Christ. It's not just a theological construct. It's an everyday reality that changes our day to day. He's saying this is where growth starts, an understanding of who you are now in a new life and a new world that's been given to you because of the resurrection. It's hope when we don't see any hope. It's growth when we think there is no growth to be had. And so he says... Because this is true, the next phrase in our text, here's what that new ruler does. Here's what it looks like to press into the rulership of Jesus. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. A couple phrases there that stick out. One, this idea of above, and just to keep things short, really when the Bible talks about above and below, it, it talks about the realms of deities, God or Satan, heaven or hell. There's a bunch of places in the New Testament where it's couched in that kind of language. And so he, he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to keep seeking the things that are above, the things of the heavenlies. And, and the heavenlies there are simply where the influence of God or the rule of God is fully felt to fully bless all of his people. 
that one day when Christ comes back, that's what will be true, is there won't be a space or a place where God doesn't completely rule. And if God is ultimately good, then everything will be ultimately good. So he's saying that those things above are the place where Christ sits, where ultimate good reigns and rules, where we get to look up and say, that's the vision of our future together. And then he defines it for us. He says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And he says, seated at God's right hand or at the right hand of God. Just a quick aside here, why he describes it like that isn't because he wants to give us an exact location of Jesus. He's not referring here to Jesus as an intercessor to us, which he is at the right hand of God. That that phrase, right hand of God, always carries with it an implication of authority and power. That phrase, right hand of God, carries with it a divine supremacy that Paul built in chapters 1 and 2. Jesus is above all. In Psalm 110, the Lord says um, this, David says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. You see it in the story with two of the disciples in Mark chapter 10. They, they sense that Jesus isn't going to be around much longer because he's said that. And they say, okay, if you're going to go to your kingdom, and they thought physical here, they didn't understand the scope of what Jesus was talking about. He said, if you're going to go to your kingdom, when you get there, can we sit on your right and left? Meaning, can we have the most powerful positions in the new kingdom you're building? And Jesus looks at him and says, no, you have no idea what you're talking about. You can't handle that, nor is that your job. I'm going to sit at the right hand of God because I am over everything, not you. That's what he's saying there. And so when he says that he's in or thinking about we're supposed to seek after the things above— which is where Jesus is, which is at the right hand of God. He's making a power play about Jesus. He is the ultimate authority. So when we think about that, we're supposed to seek after Jesus as our ultimate authority, the space and place where he rules supremely. And so we got to talk about what that word seek means because I think sometimes we, we have an incorrect idea when the Bible says seek of what it actually means. We think when it says seek that God's playing some you know, cosmic game of Marco Polo with us, that we have to go and find God on journeys and on quests and on fill in the blank here because he wants to be found. We just have to try a little harder, pray a little more, fast one more hour or one more day and God will show up to us. But my problem with that is that it's absolutely the opposite of what's taught in the scriptures. Think about it. From Genesis 3, when the story began, when sin entered the world, who ran from whom? Which did the hiding and which did the seeking? It said that Adam was ashamed and ran. Then that's what shame does. Shame causes you to run. That's why when people feel ashamed, they run from family and communities and churches and love because they don't understand or know how to process their guilt and shame. It says in the Bible that when we were ashamed, who found whom? God found Adam. It says that when we were in our sin, God came to us. It says that Jesus stepped into the mess of creation in the incarnation and came to us. The story of the Bible is not one where we have to find God, but where God constantly finds us when we need him. And that's really encouraging. That's encouraging to me as a follower of Jesus who doesn't get it right all of the time. I need my God to find me, and I need to know that he wants to. The story of the Bible is about a God who came near to a broken people, not the other way around, not a people that try to find a perfect God. And what that does is it gives me, and just gives me more profound affection for who God is, and it gives me comfort that I know that I've found God in the person of Jesus as we read in the scriptures. 
It says that he's near to those who are troubled and brokenhearted. And we need to remember that. One author said it like this. He says that we are not to strive for a heavenly status since that's already been given freely in Christ. Rather, we are to make that heavenly status the guidepost for all our thinking and acting. When he says seeking here, it's a statement of value, not a statement of finding. He's saying with all that we have, some translations actually put the word heart in here, with all that they have, seek with your heart or with all your passions, things above. May that be your best good. What this does is it reorders our loves. It's the same word we see in Matthew chapter 6, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. In context, that verse is found in the context of a section on anxiety. He's saying, Look, when you see the beauty of Jesus, you understand that's your best good, not what's happening today or tomorrow. You understand that when Jesus is your best good, you get to realize that he's reshaping what you think is important. So when Paul says, this is what growth looks like, it starts with the resurrection and then keep remembering the beauty of the resurrection, Christ that is your ultimate ruler that's sitting at the right hand of God. Keep striving after that and using that as a guidepost for how you prioritize your world. He's saying remember and value those things because this resurrection idea wasn't just a moment that shapes who you are going to become. It shapes who you're becoming. And because it's so good and so big and so beautiful, it changes what you love because it's better. A couple of years ago, I say a couple now. I am that age where I say a couple and it's really like 10. It was probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago and... Uh, my friend had a bachelor party that we threw for him in New York City. And a couple of people flew in, and one of our friends lived there already, and it was, it was awesome. It was really great. It was before I got married and before any of us had kids. And one night, we were kind of tired, and we said, hey, should we just turn in early at like 7 or 8 o'clock, and tomorrow's going to be a long day. And, um, and, and one of our friends said, no, that's not going to happen. We're here. We're in the city together. Everybody's getting married. We're going to make the most of it. And so we went out and we went to this, this, this club and, and just danced just with each other. And um, I remember there's this picture that was taken probably at some ungodly hour now, like 3.30 a.m., when we were headed home together. And we're all sweaty because we've just been having a great time. And it's one of the best nights of our lives. And so he texted this week this picture. And he said, I, I just came across this again. He said, wow, that was a great night. I said, top five for me. And he said, what does it make you think of? Because my wife's not in the room, I can feel freedom to say, I said, it made me think um, that I want to be single again, <laughs> you know? And, and he responded back, he's got two kids, and, you know, we have a kid. He, he responded back, he said, yeah, but that's just an illusion. And it's the truth. Because now that I'm on the other side of it, and I have a wife, and I have a kid, I, I don't want to go back to that anymore, because the resurrection is more beautiful than the life that I had before. We realize that now it resets my priorities, where power isn't the best good, and money isn't the best good, and saving isn't the best good. The best good are things that last. The best goods are things that make the name of Jesus known. And here's the beauty of what comes with that. When we understand and rightly value the resurrection, when we understand and rightly value the rule of Christ in our life to be over all things in our life, it brings tremendous stability in the middle of chaos. And right now, I need me some stability in the middle of chaos. I was listening to a sermon this last week, and, and um, this guy was talking about why coronavirus is so hard. And he said, because it was supposed to end five or six different times. I remember on March 15th, we had to cancel our first CBC service. 
uh, I said to the staff, I said, no doubt, 100% this is done by Easter. I can't envision a world where we don't have Easter services at CBC. It's a Super Bowl for Christians. We'll be back, you know? And then we didn't. And then I said, by mid-May, I guarantee you we'll be back. I know this is going to happen. And then we weren't. And then May turned to June and July and August. And then we thought it'd be done by the 4th. And we thought it'd be done by the beginning of school. And then we pushed back school. And then we did some in-person slash at-home. What I've heard is just nightmarish scenario, but we're all trying to do the best good with what we have. And what makes this current time so difficult is I don't know when the end is going to come. And in the middle of that kind of chaos, we lose all sense of stability. This is the beauty of Christ is that if we keep our perspective on eternal things, we do know where it ends. If we got a vaccine tomorrow and I said, hey, life will be back to normal by March of 2021, I think we'd put our heads down, power through it, and say, we're just gonna get there together. But the problem is, I don't know if that's true. And if you don't have any kind of perspective that has any kind of stability built in, chaos rules your world, you need that from somewhere. It makes it more difficult. Jesus says, think about Seek after, set your heart to, use my rule as your guidepost because in the end, I'm the authority and I've won. And so what it means to seek after God is to use it as a guide and also to know that he is in the end in charge. It brings stability to a world that right now is especially chaotic. So Paul says, hey, this is what growth looks like in Jesus. Remember that you were raised with Christ, the real life implications on that. And as you see the beauty of a Jesus who sits in authority over all things, may that reshape your loves. May that reorient your passions and may you value the resurrection and all of its beauty more than you value anything else. That word seeking there is emotional and it's heartfelt and it's driven. And so he says, may that be your best good. And then secondarily, he continues... He says, keep thinking about the things above, not the things on earth. You know, on average, the average person has somewhere between 40,000 and 60,000 thoughts a day. 40,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day. You're probably thinking, I'm an overachiever. I'm probably at 80 or 90. Good for you. The point there is simply, you think a lot. And a lot of those thoughts are repeated, but you have 40 to 60,000 thoughts a day. Paul says, keep thinking about the things above, not on earth. And what he means by that, he means, hey, all the time, it's a continuing verb. It's a continuing, it's a present, it's an active verb, which means that it's going to happen right now. It's my responsibility. I'm not going to stop doing it. He says, keep thinking about the things above. Don't just seek after it and use it as a guidepost. Don't stop doing those things with all you do. Because here's the secret. The way that we think shapes how we act, which shapes who we're becoming. Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talks about it. One of the best-selling books of all time, a fantastic book on leadership and development and growth and change. And he says there's two ways people think, reactively or proactively. And then he goes into this chapter and, and talks about the fact that proactive thinkers are better leaders because they're seeing things differently. He's saying the resurrection shapes how you think often as you continually put it before you, not just one and done. And we want to be a one and done culture. We want to raise our hand one time go to the front of whatever revival or pep rally for Jesus we're at and say, I got me some Jesus. I got my hell insurance. I'm good for a while. But, but Paul says the pursuit of Christ and growth is a continual action that we never forget about because we focused on the resurrection. But we want to be an instant culture. You know, I want to work out one time and have it last. 
I want to say my vows one time at my wedding and be like, that's good for love forever and ever, not have to keep doing it or revisit it. We don't understand that usually growth looks like influence over time as it more and more captivates us. We're developing a, a teaching team at CBC. So you don't have to listen to me every week. And there's six of us or so, and we're doing a 12-week course. And we met for the first time this last Thursday. And so we're just simply talking about what, what is preaching, what it is and what it isn't, and, and how we define it. And, and I had a prof in college one time, and he defined it my favorite way. He said, preaching is, is the weight of influence over time. And I like that because... Oftentimes, when you think, think something like this, like my job on a Sunday morning, we think my job is to change your world, your life, in the 40 or so minutes I'm going to speak, that it's forever going to change how you do your tomorrow because of our time here together. And a lot of new preachers get into it and buy into that. That's just not true. Because for the most part, I don't take it personally. You're going to forget two-thirds of this by the time I'm two-thirds of the way through. And that's okay. I think the value in preaching, what really happens over time as you listen to the stories of Jesus, as you listen to the ethic of the New Testament, as you listen to the message of grace, over time that slowly seeps in and begins to change us. That's what Paul's saying. Keep thinking of the things above that over time you might look different and think different because you're only thinking about the goodness of the resurrection. One author said it like this, I love the quote, you must not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. And so what that means, it's not some constant culture of Jesus jukers that take everything from like this dinner is good to, yeah, but so is the resurrection. That's not what he's saying all the time. He's saying that everything we do is done in light of the resurrection, meaning that it redefines our everyday. So it's so like my relationship with my wife right now isn't just about me. It's about the ongoing faithfulness of a God who sought me out, who died for me, and who gave me life again. My, my job as a parent isn't just about me. It's brought through the lens of the resurrection, meaning there is new life in Jesus that we get to pass down to generation and generation and generation as we raise them up in the ways, the life that God brings because of the resurrection. Your relationship with your boss or you as the boss relationship with your employees gets to picture and mirror the beauty of the resurrection, this new world that we get to live into. So he says, keep seeking with all you have. Use the resurrection as a guidepost and keep thinking about it. Never forget, that's the lens through which we see the world, the victory we have in Jesus, the freedom we have because he is our ruler now. And he goes on and he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. We're in this space right now of this already but not yet. And what we say by that phrase, we mean Jesus has already come and we we begin to see bits and pieces of the beauty of the new world that he's creating, but it's not fully here yet. I often refer to it like a teenager. You see these pieces of maturity, but then you don't, you know? And so we get to live in this world of we see parts of the beauty of the life that God promised, but not all the way yet. And that is frustrating, and, and that is tension-filled, and that makes us feel like we're not growing anymore as fast as we want to. And all those frustrations about celebrating growth set in right there. And so at the end of this, Paul says, and be encouraged, because your, fate, your future and your fate is sealed with Jesus. Your life, the life that he gives, nobody can take away because he has it, nobody else. He has it. If you look at the context of Colossians, it was written to a group of people from a guy in jail 
to a group of people that was a hodgepodge of different ethnicities and socioeconomic status in a city that was literally dying. In a couple hundred years, this city wouldn't exist anymore. That is not the way that people wanted to live. He's not saying if you follow Jesus, it's going to make you more powerful. It's going to make you richer. It's going to make you happier. What he's saying, it's going to give you more joy. And it's going to, in the end, increase people's ability to see the beauty of Jesus. He's warning them, look, it might look like this growth isn't happening. But I promise you, I promise you, even though you can't see it, it is. And then he says, and one day, by the way, at the end of this, you too will be revealed in glory with him. One day, everybody else will see the way you see. Because one day, everybody will realize and recognize what Jesus did. This foreshadowing of the second coming, this foreshadowing of the fact that God's not done with our world and hasn't given up on it. And and so as we live in the day-to-day, we begin to realize that people see the beauty of Jesus and in those moments when it doesn't feel like they do, when it feels like what we're doing isn't helping, he reminds us that one day everybody will see the same thing we see, the beauty of the resurrected Lord. And so he says, keep going. You want to know what spiritual growth looks like? It's it's simply remembering the significance of the resurrection and letting the resurrection reorient your loves and reshape your everyday because it's true because we now walk in a different way, because we see a different world. So sure, it's full of prayer meetings and, and, and Bible studies, and it's full of everything else in between, but ultimately it comes down to this. Spiritual growth, or the Christian life, is going to begin with how we see the resurrection and how much we let the resurrection shape what we love and shape how we think, each and every day. So it takes on a lot of different ways. He's going to get into the next six and seven verses and talk about here's some things you should probably stop doing because it's killing you and here's some things that you should probably keep doing because it gives life in light of the resurrection. But it's Paul's remembrance to his people that what's central in growth, as we change, as we grow, what's central to that message of growth is the beauty of, the significance of, the life-alteringness of the resurrection. So since you've been raised with Christ, seek the place where he rules and reigns and keep thinking about the power of the resurrection in your everyday. That's what it means to grow. And we do it in a lot of different shapes and sizes here. And, and one of the ways we do it is through communion. So we're going to spend some time and take communion this morning. But communion is a remembrance of, of what Jesus did on the cross. It's a remembrance of not just what he did on the cross, but what happened after the cross that he rose again. And so you can gather your elements with you wherever you're at. And I'll walk us through it together. I don't have a cup, but let's pretend like I have a cup this morning. Um, he, He got up in front of his friends and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. And he said, it's gonna shadow what's going to happen, but it's not gonna stay broken. And so he took bread and he broke it. And he said, eat this bread and remember my sacrifice. And then he took a glass of wine and he held it up and he said, this is my blood and it's going to be shed for you. I'm going to bleed for you. I'm going to take your place so that I might rule in and over you. He said, this is my blood that's been shed for you. Drink and remember.
God, might we never forget the centrality of the resurrection as followers of Jesus. May that be where we begin. May that go before us as we go into our day-to-day. We're thankful for your sacrifice and we are grateful that you live so that we might be offered life. Might that fill us with a never-ending supply of joy and stability in the middle of the unknown. Might we never forget the resurrection of Christ. We pray these things in his name.